We'd open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we continue our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15 is a resurrection chapter dealing with uh, Christ's resurrection as well as our resurrection someday. And, um, and so what Paul does as he writes about the resurrection of Christ is that there were some in the church who were doubting the physical bodily resurrection of not only Jesus but also of ourselves. And so it was a question they asked. It was another issue that he had to address in the church among many issues. So I'm going to start reading here in verse 12. Last week we covered the gospel and its importance when he lays the foundation for the resurrection with the gospel. And then he starts in uh, verse 12 of chapter 15. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And so this we ask, we pray that you would open up its powerful truths to us this morning. And I pray, Father, that you would teach us, and I pray, Father, that you would deepen our understanding, Lord, of what has gone on physically, Lord Jesus, with you, and what will go on physically with us someday, Lord. And meanwhile, Father, as we are here in our earthly tents, Father, we look to you and ask you, Lord, and you alone, to please give us clarity of thought. And please give us understanding, Father, as we live this life. And I pray, Father, we live it well for you. And so, Lord, we give you this time, and we thank you for your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so here we are. This chapter, as we look at 1 Corinthians, offered one of the most detailed accounts of what happens to a person after they die. And, uh, and so this is the thing with each and every one of us. And we know this, though we don't want to think about it too often, is that we will at some point obviously die. And so then what happens to us after that? And it's going to be an interesting transition, to say the least. I mean, it's just something we're all going to have to deal with sooner or later. And, and we think about what that means for us. We, as far as what we know about death is that we just know what we've experienced with the loss of loved ones, how hard that ache, you know, that brings the heart to ache. Uh, the emptiness that comes about as a result, uh, the fact that they're gone, at least in our mind's eye forever, um, but yet they're not. And so that's something the Lord wants to encourage us with as we think about those things. And we understand, and I just have in the bottom of the outline here, that a person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. And so we all just know that, and we come to this realization as time comes along that, well, wait a minute, my time here is limited. And I don't know if I really want to face that. <laughs> but yet it's a fact of life. And so here we are as we look about these things. And so what I, I really 
And I love this as we work down through this. So what the Lord wants to do is give us insight into um, what that means for us. He, he just doesn't say, you know, come to Christ, understand the gospel, understand that he died and was buried and was raised the third day, which is what 1 Corinthians starts out with, 15. He said, that's important, and I want you to understand your need for salvation, but I also want you to understand what's in store for you, that, that, that these are things that you will expect, and which is to give us hope, right? And so he does that. Now, I, I'm going to kind of read that. I like this quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is really kind of a deep guy, you know, and you read him, you almost read him a couple times, but talk about an intriguing mind that he had in his understanding of spiritual things. He, in, he said this, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. Interesting. And then he goes on and says this, all day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Interesting, isn't it? You know, and, and really what he's saying, it, it really puts it in perspective. He's saying no matter how dull you might think the individual to be, no matter how stupid you might think them to be, no matter how unsociable they are, or how disgusting they are, on and on and on, whatever our view is of that individual, you're not talking to a mere mortal. Depending on whether or not they know Christ, you could be talking to a son or daughter of God who's going to be glorified at some point. And I just think that's really interesting kind of puts life in perspective. And I read that quote, and I just thought it would be a good way to start out as we start to talk about what it means for us as believers to look forward to what it means to be resurrected. And I can't wait. <laughs> I, I just can't wait for what that means for us. And so we're going to look at this a little bit. See, there were, the, the problem back then is with this church, is with many churches, is they were really not willing to accept the truth of God's word when it comes to understanding life. They wanted to define life their way. They wanted to look at life from their perspective. And they just sort of kind of, you know, brushed scripture off concerning these things. And so Paul, and I just love him because he doesn't care. He's just going to face it head on. That's the way Paul is. Uh, come heck or high water, he doesn't really care what they think about him. What he does care is that we get an understanding of the scriptures and what it means for us as believers. And so we're going to kind of work down through this a little bit. I, I just read point one. When Christ redeemed us, he did, he did not just redeem our spirits and souls. He redeemed us as a whole person, meaning that he redeemed our bodies also. He redeemed the believer's body, soul, and spirit for glorification so that we could dwell with him as a whole person for eternity. That's eternal life. And this is a hope we possess because of our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So he redeemed the whole person. And when we think about that, and you think about the different states of our physical nature, some much worse than others, 
some born with deformities, some born with, you know, uh, uh, all kinds of different problems, be it whatever, mentally or physically, things like that. God still redeemed that person full body, understanding the fallen nature, but also understanding what glorification will mean for that person when they finally draw their last breath in their home to be with the Lord. And praise God for that when we think about the hope that he puts in us. And that's why he writes to us the way he does in the scriptures, to give us clarity of thought concerning what our future has in store for us. And it's important for us to understand that. And what he wants to do is put expectation in us. So here we are, and part of our salvation when we receive a resurrected body is called glorification. And that's really what that means. And it's the final step of our completeness in the Lord. And so we're going to look at Paul's argument because they were saying there is no resurrection. And he breaks his argument down very nicely in verses 12 to 19. And I'll just start out in verse 1. But if it is preached that Christ has not been raised from the dead, so notice he said, if it has been preached. So in other words, there were those who were standing up basically um, speaking as if they had authority from God to do so. And they were preaching in the pulpits and perhaps maybe in this church in Corinth they were preaching that Christ was not raised from the dead. And here we have Paul, the ultimate preacher, obviously, in this orator, the things of Christ, refuting that. If it has been preached, it says, that Christ has been, has, that Christ has, uh, been raised from the dead. How can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? And he was basically saying that I preach that Christ has been raised. There are others who are saying that he hasn't. And how can that be? And so he's going to go down. He's going to actually break down uh, four consequences of saying that that apply to the scriptures, but also three consequences if he had not been raised from the death that apply to us also. Now, I just find it interesting when you think about the scriptures and what it means to claim Christ as your Lord and Savior, we all base our salvation on the truth of the scriptures. I mean, that's what I did. I mean, you look at the scriptures, you read the scriptures, and you understand that either these things or these writings are true or they're not. And so we who have embraced the scriptures by faith understand that we have embraced truth. And praise God, because if you look anywhere else for truth, you're not going to find it. It's just all messed up, obviously, with how the word, world wants to define what life's all about. And here we are, so that's why he's kind of arguing here concerning these things. And I'll just read it in the top of the outline on page two. Without the veracity of the resurrection, our lives would be no better off than that of an animal confined to its basic instincts without any understanding of life after death. And so, you know, that's what it would be confined to. In fact, without the resurrection, the truth of the scriptures would be nullified and without effect, and our faith would be a joke and no different than what non-believers put their faith in. And really, that's what Paul is talking about as we look at these things. And so let's go down through it, and let's see what his points are as he talks about the theological consequences First, if there's no resurrection in Christ, resurrection obviously is a falsehood. And he says in verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, if there's no resurrection. So he said that's a theological implication. Um, I mean, you know, if you say there isn't, then, then obviously Christ didn't become, you know, resurrected into the body. He is, in fact, to say that there's no resurrection is to call Jesus Christ a liar concerning that. So... This is really, when we look at these verses down through uh, verse 20, next week we're going to get into what the, what the body's going to be like, you know. That's going to be awesome. I just didn't want to do that this Sunday. I just thought we're going to stick here with his arguments 
And then next week, we're going to look into more of an understanding of what it's going to be like for us to have a resurrected body and what that's going to mean for us. But right now, he's arguing because people are saying that Christ is a liar. He says in Luke 24, he told them, this is what is to happen. Jesus said this, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus himself said the Messiah is going to die and then rise on the third day. And so really what he does is he draws a parallel between man and, his, and, and, and the Son of, of God because of the Son's humanity, 100% human, 100% a man. And when he died, cessation of life. When he died, his body became a corpse. And they took it down off the cross. And they carried it to the tomb that had been cut out for him. And they prepared it like they did any other body. And we see that. One of the things for those of us who have experienced funerals, for those of us who have lost loved ones and we see them there, for those of us who have been in that situation, and many of us have, if not everyone here, we understand that that body has no life in it. And we see that. And if we're honest, there's a little bit of confusion as to why. And none of us like it. But it's just the reality of life. And we look at that. And if we did not have hope beyond the grave, then what would we have? And that's the reality of death. And this is the thing for those of us who call ourselves believers, sons and daughters of the living God. We can look at that individual and we understand that there is someday, other than maybe the rapture of Christ, would just please take me up before I die. I think that would be so awesome, right? That someday I'll be in that same state. And what do we do with that kind of information? And so what Paul is arguing about here in his statement is basically saying that, are you kidding me? You've come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. You, at least you say you have. And your hope is in what? If you don't believe that there is a resurrection, what have you put your hope in? And so here we have Christ, and he stopped breathing, and his heart stopped beating, and his brain shut down, and he died, and he was no longer alive. And his life as a man ceased to exist, and what was left behind was his body. And Paul refers it to a tent, you know. How many here whose tents leak, right? You know, you've never been out camping, and a stupid tent starts leaking on you, and then all of a sudden your sleeping bag's all wet, and you're trying to find a, you know. That's why I don't camp anymore. <laughs> but he calls it a tent. He says, now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in, house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. And so really, it's interesting because he says found naked means be without our earthly bodies. That's what he's talking about. To be, it, it, so that's what our desire is. That's what he says here. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. And so here we are when we die and we leave our bodies as we look down on our bodies and we leave our bodies and realize that the reality of death has just taken place and the reality of the eternal life has just taken place. The reality of me having control over my body 
and my choices and the things that I do and who I interact with and what I say, everything has just left. And now here I am on a journey. And as a believer, I know that that journey is going to take me up to be with God. Praise God for that. And that's the reality of it. And that's the thing that those who don't know Christ don't want to think about. Oh, everybody goes to heaven. Well, we know that that's not true. And so found naked, that means to be without earthly body. And it's called a disembodied state. And at this point, Christ greatly differs from man. And this is Paul's argument. Because all believers upon death are naked. That is, they are without a physical body where Jesus Christ received this physical body. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. Do you realize this? That when he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, he is sitting there in a physical body. In his glorified body. And he's the only one in heaven that I understand that has this glorified physical body. And so that's why he differs than we are. And this disembodied state of existence is something that's really, I think one of the best passages in scripture that describes what happens. And Jesus said this. It's not a parable. It's a true story. This is what goes on. And we understand Lazarus and the rich man. And I, I just find it very interesting that the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So now we understand that upon death, we will still be recognizable. You know, we're not going to be just some blob floating around, you know, <laughs> some mist that speaks, right? <laughs> So we're going to be recognizable. That <laughs> I means I'm going, to, I'm going to be able to recognize each and every one of you. I think that's awesome. And those that we've loved who have gone before us, can you imagine a reunion and what that's going to be like? The embrace, the joy. And that's all meant to give us hope. And so here you have these two guys, you know, and you have Abraham and you have the rich man. Abraham was a believer in, in, in the Messiah. He had looked forward to the coming of Christ. This rich man was satisfied with the things he had in life. In fact, it tells us that, that, that Lazarus would lay at the side of the road just desiring the crumbs off of the rich man's table. That's how poor he was, you know. And you, you talk to these people about this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel and all this kind of stuff. And to me, that blows it right out of the water. His riches came from his faith in the Messiah. And so here he is, and he dies, and the rich man dies. And I just love the, this, this account, that, this historical account that Jesus talks about. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. So another thing that we understand, too, that we were not going to be mute, that we we're going to be able to speak, okay, which is really good too. Well, maybe for some, maybe not for others. <laughs> We're going to be able to speak. And he says, but we also understand that there's physical sensation, right? We get this because uh, Abraham's comforted by the side of Abraham. We understand that the rich man is in agony and he's thirsty. And we're also told that he's in, in Hades, which is before he is judged at the great white throne judgment and then thrown into the pit for eternity. All right. So we understand that. But Abraham replied, son, re notice what he calls him, son. Son, remember that in your lifetime, 
you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, the great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And so now we understand that there's a distinction between those who don't know Christ and where they go and those who do know Christ. And we move on to comfort, no matter what we might have suffered in this life. We're instantly experiencing the comfort of God. He's a God of all comfort. And those who have refused the gospel for one reason or another find themselves in torment. And so here we're given a picture that Jesus gives us of what goes on upon death. We understand we have recognizable features and that we can speak and that we can hear and we can interact, those kind of things. But that's still a disembodied state. It's still a, a state of being naked without the body. And so that's what Paul, so it, it, Paul's first argument is that, uh, as he says here, if there's no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. And so, you know, Jesus himself is lying. Then he goes on and says, and it, his second argument concerns the gospel. If there's no resurrection, then our preaching is useless. He says in, in verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And so, so why bother preaching the gospel if the resurrection doesn't exist? And you might say, well, listen, I don't preach. Well, we all preach by how we live the gospel. We just do. Every one of us, we're preaching every day by how we live the gospel. Sometimes we do all right, sometimes we don't. I mean, it's just the way it is. Sometimes we are really preaching well, and sometimes we're just not preaching well at all. It depends, but we're still preaching the gospel. Our lives represent Jesus Christ. What we say and what we do and how we interact with one another is a representation of Jesus Christ, meaning that we represent the gospel to a world without a savior. Though the savior is available depending on whether or not they want to embrace the savior. And so here we are. That's how powerful it is for us. And Paul's saying, listen, if there's no resurrection, why, why preach at all? Because the gospel is useless. Um, and what we preach is what we've put our faith in, obviously. Uh, and here we are preaching nonetheless. And I'll just read the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 for what I received. I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day. What? According to the scriptures. And apart from the resurrection, Jesus could not have conquered sin and death or hell. And those three evils would never be eliminated. And here he's done that for us. And so we certainly wouldn't have anything to preach about if there was no resurrection. And we'll just move on down to, through. And he says, he goes on to say, without Christ's resurrection, our faith would be useless. And he says this once again, your faith would be useless too, he says. And so we think about that. And we think about how our faith would be used. We would be no different than those who worship the idols that they worship today if, we, or if our faith was useless. And on the, the world's full of idol worship. You know, no matter what you think about it, you know, obviously we don't see that. You know, it was interesting. Um, uh, uh, Satan worshipers, they've made it. I forget what state they have this statue. What's that? Is it Oregon? Yeah, well, my brother lives in Soldotna, Alaska. You would think it would just be some great place. It's on the Kenai Peninsula. It's, a, it's a kind of like 
It's right along the ocean, Kenai, where all the salmon come in and everything. And I, one of these days, I'm going to go visit that. He keeps on inviting me, but like a, a thunderhead, I keep on turning him down. But anyways, what they did, and just thinking about how people worship, God has put in us a desire to worship. And either we worship the true living God or we're worshiping something else. That's why people embrace idols. And people don't quite understand the draw of that. But here they had a town meeting, and they opened up the town meeting with a prayer to Satan. Because they have in one of their stupid laws where they're going to open it up to anybody that wants to express any kind of faith in any way they want to. And so this person stands up, and, he, and, he, and that's how they opened the town meeting in Sulfatna of all places. And it was a prayer to Satan. And the mayor got up, and seven others got up, and they immediately walked out of the room. So we're not going to have any part of this. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, and the reason they left is because they say, we don't worship Satan. And they really made a stand for Christ. Isn't that interesting? And so you think about that. And if there was no resurrection, our faith would be useless. But there is a resurrection, and it's not useless. You think about that. And so Satan loves that we embrace any kind of idol other than Jesus Christ himself. And here we are, and we're saying we're not going to embrace any idol whatsoever. We're going to embrace Christ. And that's really Paul's argument. Are you kidding me? You say there's no resurrection, and why are you even, you know, expressing that you have faith? What are you putting your faith in? Romans 1.17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And he said, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so... Here we are, and he's saying, without the resurrection, faith in Christ would be worthless. And a dead Savior could not give life if the de dead do not rise. And he's not a dead Savior, obviously. And you think about all the Hall of Fame of the faithful in Hebrews 11, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Rahab, David, the prophets, and all the others would have been uh, faithful for nothing. And they would have been mocked and scourged and imprisoned and stoned and afflicted and ill-treated and put to death completely in vain. And all believers of all ages would have believed for nothing and lived for nothing and died for nothing. And here we are. And it's, it's interesting. 2019, June of 2019, all these years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and God is still gathering saints together to worship him and to praise him and to adore him, and to love them with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he will do it until the day he raptures the church. And that's what we stand on. Who cares what the culture thinks? Who cares what people think about us? Who cares about those things? What really should matter to us is what Jesus Christ wants. You know, and he gives us abundance of life. We have so much. Why not enjoy those things, but always with him being the focus of what we've been given and we understand that when we see a loved one laying in a casket or we, our hearts ache for the loss of one, a husband, a wife, a child, all because of the fallen nature and the things that go on and how the heart aches, but yet we have hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we can't lose focus of that. We've got to keep our eyes on him. Our faith is not useless. And that's what Paul is arguing. Oh, this church was just all messed up. And they're thinking theologically, and the wolves have come in, and they've taken them astray, and, and Paul's just getting them all straightened out again. You've got to keep your eyes on Christ and understand what that means for us. And so all the New Testament truth stands or falls together based on what the truth of the resurrection. And next, Paul gives what is described as three personal consequences. 
And it says here in verse 17, as we, as we go down through this, it says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, he goes. And then he goes on and says, then those who are lost are fallen asleep, have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. And he's going on and he's saying once again about your faith being useless. He's saying, because we'd still be in our sins. And I tell you, that's one place where I don't want to stay parked, is in my sins. And it's, you know, it's interesting, as you grow in Christ, you become so much more aware of your sin nature, and you begin to loathe it because you're tired of doing battle with it. You're just tired of the way you think. You're tired of the way you talk. You're tired of the way you react. You're tired of the thoughts that come popping in the mind. You're just tired of it. After a while, you just go weary of the battle that we have with the sin nature. But yet the battle's going to remain. I tell somebody, I says, why can't I get victory here? What's going on here? Why? And I'm saying, listen, it's something that we must persevere because the battle is not going to go away until we draw our last breath. So understand it and recognize it for what it is. And then look to Christ to give you victory over what those things are. And understand, too, that that battle could be there tomorrow. Or it might pop up a month later. But that's the battle that we're in. And to think without the resurrection, we'd still be in our sin. I mean, talk about a hopeless state of existence. I'm looking forward to the day that I'm going to be set free, that my mind will be set free, that my heart will be set free, that I will not know what it's like to sin, let alone think sinfully. And I look forward to that day. And come, Lord Jesus, that we could be freed from those things finally to live a life that he wants to give us, that glorification, so we can be free from all those things that hold us back in this life. And Paul's saying without the resurrection, you'd still be in your sin. And that would really be hopeless to think about. Understand, he says, the consequences of knowing, not knowing Christ as your Lord and Savior, if he were not raised, there would be no possible way to stand before the Lord without sin and condemnation. Do you realize when we stand at the beam of seat, each and every one of us, and I brought it up before individually, and I don't know how we're going to do that. I mean, we're talking about millions upon millions of believers. You know, how long is it going to take? Well, when we're in eternity, time's going to, you know, go away. And he calls each of us up, and he's going to say, okay, uh, I don't know what he's going to use, our full names. <laughs> we're all saying, Frederick Charles Bell III. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shucks, I was hoping I was further back in the line. <laughs> and I go up and I stand before my king. He's not going to bring up any sin. None. Because it's already been covered by the blood of Christ. And, and he's going to look on us lovingly, and we're going to look upon him lovingly. And we're going to understand fully what his death, burial, and resurrection meant for us. And that should give us hope. Because he says, I remove them as far as the east is from the west. I've blotted them from record. I've turned my back on them. I've hurled them into the sea, never to be retrieved again. And that's what he means for us. And he's saying, listen, if there was no resurrection, you'd still be in your sin, which means that we would stand before him, not at the Bema seat, but at the great throne, uh, white throne judgment to be judged for sin. And oh, how my heart goes out for those that are going to stand at that judgment 
like the rich man having no hope because there's no turning back at that point, no changing of the heart or the mind. And I love it. He says in John 8, 23, but he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die from your sins. And he was talking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the ones that were mocking him and looking at him as being false and things like that. God himself in the flesh before them, and he tells them these things. And so without the foundation of this primary component, our faith would be useless. And we could not expect life to be any more than it simply is. A life where there's nowhere to, where to turn or escape of self-condemnation, alone, let alone God's condemnation. And I just praise God. Listen, the thing is, is and, in Jesus, and if Jesus remained, remained dead, then we too would remain dead and damned. And damned. And we're not. We're very much alive, very much forgiven, and very much a part of his economy of life, for lack of a better way of saying it. And that's one personal implication. Another one here in verse 18, without the resurrection, all who die in the Lord are lost, they are without hope. And he goes on, uh, then there are those who have fallen asleep in Christ, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. And so we would have no hope. And I need hope. I mean, I hold on to hope. I, I just always hold on to expectation. You know, we have expectation in this life. It's life deals with whatever it brings. We just look forward to things getting better or forward to things maybe changing or forward to or life circumstances changing for us. I mean, in this life. But if there's no resurrection, then what do I hold on to for what's going to go on later for me? Like in Hebrews 6, 18 and 19, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, and it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. You see what the Lord is doing and understand what the resurrection has meant for us. It means that we're not lost in our sins. It means that we have hope. And it's just interesting about what he says, too, for those of us who have fallen asleep, he calls here, then those who uh, also who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? It means, obviously, a reawakening. And it's just not, obviously, something. It's not annihilationism where there is no possibility beyond the grave, obviously. And then the third thing he says here, if Christ were not raised, then we would be pitied more than anyone else on earth. Such pity. And he says here in Ephesians 2, he says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so no one, I don't care what they might think of us, I don't care how much they might mock us, I don't care what this world has to say about our stance on Jesus Christ. Their opinion does not matter. His opinion does. And what he's done for us and the finished work of Christ on the cross and what that means for us. And that's what gives my life value and it's what gives your life value. 
And without the resurrection, we would have no value to even begin to think about. And that's the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And how wonderful that must have been to see him when he came back and they recognized him as he appeared to Peter and then to the 500 and the two walking along the road as they were all confused. And there Jesus comes alongside and he's talking to them. And oh, what, that must have been such a thrill for them when they realized after that wasn't our hearts burning within us. And you think about that. If you want to admit our hearts are burning within us this very moment as we wait for our resurrection, as we wait for the rapture to occur. And meanwhile, what he has called us to is just to be faithful, to live a life of responsibility before our God and our Savior by what we say and what we do and by making sure that we do not compromise with the world and its ways. How enticing it is. And that's the challenge that he brings along for us. When you think about this, if your life in Christ is the passion that fuels your daily existence, you understand Paul's point. If it's not, it doesn't mean that much to you. And that's really what he's saying. So I'm just going to wrap down here in conclusion, and I'm just going to read verse 20 here. And it says this, but, in Christ, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And I'll just read point three. Unbelief does not nullify the truth of Christ's resurrection. Consequently, as believers, our witness is not useless. It, it has power and it's based on absolute truth. And our faith is not useless. It has value. It's powerful, full of hope, meaning, and encouragement as we eagerly anticipate our glorification of those who have been counted among the redeemed. And we look at that and we understand those things that our faith is not hopeless. Our witness is not useless, it's powerful. And our faith is not useless, it has value, it's powerful, it's full of hope, meaning, encouragement, and benefits beyond our comprehension. We think about faith as the evidence of things hoped for and the substance of things not seen. Another thing is that we're not liars. We're not false witnesses. We more than anyone else on the planet express truth by how we live. We're living proof of God's truth carried around in, in jars of clay. For we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, it says in 2 Corinthians, as Lord and ourselves, as your servants for Jesus Christ, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. For we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And then we are not still in our sin period. And I'll just read this in Romans 6. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. And so we no longer have to worry about that, praise God. And then when someone now is in Christ, we know without a doubt that they are with the Lord. And we know that without a doubt. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. But we live by faith, not by sight. And we're confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. For we make our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. We understand that those who die in Christ are with the Lord. And so when we die, two things to look forward to. If we happen to die before the rapture, 
we look forward to being home with the Lord. And we look forward to being reunited with people. I mean, I, I mean I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing an aunt that I remember from years ago um, that I never really as a young child got much of a chance to talk to her, but I know she was a believer because she housed missionaries in her home in Cherry Tree, Pennsylvania, of all places. You know. <laughs> and I know that. And I can remember that when she died, they laid her out because they used to lay them out in the homes, right? And I'd go, and I'm just like this kid, I don't know, eight years old or so, kind of timidly going up to the casket and peering in. And I'm saying, yeah, that's Aunt Jen, you know. I certainly recognize who she is, but I certainly don't know what happened to her, <laughs> right? And you know something? I often think about who prayed for me. Who prayed for me? And I bet you she did. To pray for the ones you don't, that you know don't know the Lord in your family. I'm convinced, maybe the Lord, maybe it's just my figment of my imagination, or, or maybe there's truth to it. Maybe it's a revelation from God. But I think she's the one who prayed for those out-of-control triplets. And little did she know that one of them will be a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm looking forward to seeing her. You know, dancing in the fields, right? When you think about the hope that Christ has given us, we've got to hold on to it. No matter what life might bring us, no matter how the tents tear down, no matter what might happen in, in our interpersonal relationships, no matter the struggles that we have, God has given us hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's something we must hold dear because as soon as we let go of that, we find ourselves in a state of hopelessness, and Christ never intended for us to live in hopelessness, but always with expectation, as he gives us the strength we need to live the life while we are here, understanding what's in store for us, what's in store for the redeemed. And let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, constantly teaching us and constantly so full of truth and, and, and challenges, Lord, and just... The heart aches, Lord, as we read these things. The mind, Lord, sings with truth. And we thank you, Father, that you're God of truth, and we thank you for expectation, and we look so forward, Father, to the day. Meanwhile, Father, how I pray for your anointing on each and every one, Lord, your anointing on the marriages, your anointing, Lord, on uh, the parents as they raise their children, your protection over them, your protection over these dear children we see running around, Father, your just your anointing on all of us, Father, as you're redeemed, that you would protect us and keep us strong. And always, Lord, that you would help us to keep focused on you and you alone as we live this life. And I pray, Father, that we would live it well for you as this world crumbles and as this world gets increasingly more wicked. What you've done, Father, is you've drawn us out and you've given us purpose and you've made us holy. And we thank you, Father, for that. So, Father, we're yours. And, Lord, we readily admit that. And I thank you, Father, that we are. And I pray, Father, that this service today honored you because that's what our hearts desire us to do, to honor your good name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.